Well, the title of this sermon series is called Blessed Assurance. We're finally going to get around to that subject. The idea of the assurance of our faith. And uh, we've been talking about a lot of different things. We've been talking about life. If I have something in my hands, I'll play with it the whole time. Um, life, light, and love, right? We'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. Uh, that's been kind of our outline for this series. So we've been talking about much of that. But, but John is, is, um, is careful to salt his letters, his gospel and his letters, with a sense of assurance that he just sprinkles throughout. And you find it as a, a little tasty morsel as you read all the way through his gospel and all the way through his letters. The idea of what it means to be uh, loved by God, that we might overcome the world. I'm pointing over here to the world. That we might surrender to God and overcome the world by turning our back on it. And so he's helping us to understand the, the delight, the joy of living in that blessed assurance of God's people overcoming. So that's where we're going to live today. We're going to look at that. And I, and we're going to look at it kind of in the, in a weird way because, um, one of the testimonies that we're going to call forward is a, a Romanian preacher who lived his life in martyrdom. And, um, and so we'll take a look at that as kind of the fulcrum by which we look at life, by giving our lives away. So uh, kind of a curious thought. But I think it's spot on that we live our lives when we give them away. We truly live when we die to self. And that's one of those imponderables that makes all the difference in the world. We finally get a hold of that. So that's where we're going to be. Let's stand and read together out of First John. And, uh, yeah. And John is helping us understand our blessed assurance here. And John, First John 5, 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments and his commandments are not burdensome, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the Word of God. Thank you. Have a seat. So indeed, John is helping us in his old age to see that we can live above fear. I'm, uh, I'm not surprised, I guess, because um, we don't push uh, the doctrine far enough, I think, sometimes. And so, um, and so some people, 
say, I, I believe in Jesus by faith, and, and yet, naggingly in their mind and heart, is there still this idea that I need to perform somehow for God? And so, um, they'll come to me and say, uh, Jesus, uh, uh, Dave, I, I love Jesus, but I'm not sure I've been good enough to go to heaven. And I want to look at them in the eye and say, you haven't been, but I don't think that's very pastoral. I'm not sure they'd take the joke. But the reality is, is there's a, a nagging thing within humanity that wants to perform our way into some kind of blessing. We feel like that's how it's always done. And in the world, that is how it's done. We, we simply perform. We, by way of appearance and performance, find our way into a place of honor. And so we think, well, heaven is a place of honor. I must get there by my clever appearance or my, or my clever performance or my beautiful uh, appearance. And God is going against that human nature and has invited us into the supernatural and to receive a profound gift of life that has nothing to do with your appearance or performance, to which I am very grateful. Amen. So what have we learned so far? A few things. We've learned that we too often settle for less than what God has set aside for us, that we live under our privilege. I think it was Charissa that used that line recently with me, that we live under our privilege. We are royalty. We are a holy nation. We are a called people. And we walk around with our chins down rather than our chins high. And uh, we fail to live into all the privilege and authority and power and hope and glory and grace and mercy that he has set for, aside for us. We kind of muck around in the mud rather than standing above it. So that's, that's not great. We've learned that. But we have also learned that truth indeed does set us free. Once we learn that we have uh, authority, a royal blood in us, we begin to live above the world and no longer encumbered by it like we used to be. So we find ourselves in a new place, John would tell us. We, we've learned that love has consequences, that love transforms us when someone truly knows us and truly loves us. It is a, a transforming reality because I'm afraid that if you truly know me, you might not truly love me. If you really knew me, again, that's that kind of performance-based thing. If you really knew me, if you saw the full videotape of my life, you'd go, wow, that guy really doesn't deserve much honor and respect. He's, he's quite broken. And that would be true. Except that God sees that brokenness and, as I would say, he doesn't love us if he loves us anyway. What a profound sentence. He doesn't love us if he loves us anyway. He knows us. He made us. He sees every flawed and broken thought and action and says, Dave, I love you. <laughs> what a thought. What a reality. What a transformation. 
forming thing. And, and love has consequences. Not only does the gift of love have consequences, but the taking of love or offering only a performance-based love, that has consequences. When you fail to love well, that has consequences. The failure of the church to love her brothers and sisters in the room is deeply consequential to our witness in the world. Our failure to love each other well. And I'm not just talking about in here. It's kind of easy in here. I'm talking about, I don't know, some of those others out there that we want to judge because they don't look like us so much. So love has its consequences for better and for worse. And then we remember that nothing transforms, nothing gives life like truth and love. Truth and love. I want to say true truth and true love. I want, I want to put capital letters in front of those because there's a lot of so-called truth out there, right? And there's a lot of false love out there. We're, we're not lacking for truth and love. We're just lacking for true truth and true love. And so that's... that's uh, have you guys ever played that little game? Um, I think it's called Corner on the Market. Is that what it's called? You're trading stocks, cards. What's it called? Pit. Thanks, right? So you're trading, you're trading cards and stocks. This is an illustration that just came to me. It apparently isn't working. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry to have brought this up. It's a fun game. Look for it. And you're trying to get a corner on the market. When you get all of one card, you yell out, corner on the market, I think. Oh, leave me alone. And um, <laughs> can, can we edit this out later? Yeah. The point is, <laughs> forgetting all else, um, the point is, is that you, you want to get a corner. We, we have the corner on the market on truth and love. True truth and true love. Disneyland is trying to sell it to you. Uh, commerce is trying to sell it to you. Education is trying to sell it to you. No, we, we have it. We have true truth and true love. The world desperately wants what we have. We haven't found a way to say it as winsomely as we, want, as we need. And we've sometimes forgotten the power and the authority of what that true truth and that true love is. And so we hold it conservatively rather than boldly sharing our truth and our love, knowing that the world may very well reject it. Rejected Christ when he tried to share the truth and love. So all that's going on. We've talked about life, light, and love. I want to talk a little bit about that eternal life, that indomitable light and the fearless love of Jesus Christ. So, I don't know, some time ago in the middle of the night, I came upon a commentary by Dr. Robert Law. It was written in 1909, and he summarized the message of 1 John in three words. This is 1909, Dr. Robert Law. Life, light, and righteousness. He probably got it right, but I found three L's. Life, light, and love. Life, light, and right, righteousness. It's, it's interesting that 
this sense of understanding has kind of passed a test of time. It actually gives us a bit of a personal test. Remember uh, several weeks ago I said there is a, a set of tests in this chapter, in this book, that helps us test our life in Christ. It helps us to do that self-examine, kind of what happens when we go to a memorial service and we look at lives well lived and then we take a look at ourselves and we say, wow, how am I doing? And, and that's great. It's good to do that exercise. It's good to make sure we do that against Christ, not against the world. These are wonderful men, of course. But we judge ourselves according to the person of Jesus Christ, even as Lee and Rick did. So, and when we do that, we think to ourselves, well, tell me, uh, what about my life? What about my light? What about my love? What does that look like? So I want to live there a little bit today. I want to do some of that self-testing. A guy by the name of John Piper that I like very much came up with some tests. And so uh, that's lovely. He came up with 10 tests. I think he kind of doubled up on some of them. So I want to talk about this idea of blessed assurance, and I want to talk about this uh, tests of our saving faith. How do I know I'm going to go to heaven? Which I don't think is actually a, a terrific question because it makes it sounds like my game plan is to get to heaven rather than my game plan is to be like Christ. And so I'm, I'm not sure it's about my destination. It's about my life in Christ. It's about abiding. It's about finding fellowship with God and manifesting his life, light, and love in the world by abiding in him and pursuing his priorities done in his way. So if we get to thinking it's all about heaven, I may forget that there's a purpose and a blessing for me right here, right now. I want to be careful about that. But still, the idea of being able to sort of test myself against Scripture, I think, is a wonderful idea. For instance... Uh, those uh, as a test, those who are born of God, keep his commandments. First John 2. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. I don't know why, why John always pads these things. He, you know, he never just comes out and says it. Who, whoever doesn't follow his commandments is a stinking liar. I don't, I don't, maybe the adjective's not in there. But he's a liar. He, she's a liar. You're, the test is my following of his commandments. And remember how he said, but my, my commandments, my, my burdens are not hard. And you're thinking to yourself, wow, when I think about commandments and those ten commandments, those sound hard to me. But John says they're not hard. Because I'm asking you to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To give it all you got. And I'm asking you to love each other in the same manner. I'm asking you to get after it. I, I'm not asking you to perform for me. I'm asking you to love like me. So, it's a great test. Those who are born of God keep His commandments. Those who are born of God walk as Christ walked. Okay, that's interesting. By this, 1 John chapter 2, next two verses. Uh, by this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk, ought to behave, ought to 
carry themselves, right, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked, at the same way in which he carried himself in his priorities. Okay? That seems easy enough. I'm supposed to put on the priorities. I'm supposed to put on the carriage, the character of Christ, and walk in the same manner. And that sounds to me like a, a, a sacrificial, humble, generous, kind, graceful, merciful life. Okay. More concerned about others than I am for myself. That's how Jesus lived. Okay. Those that are born of God don't hate others, but love them. Again, first John, now we're in chapter 2. Again, a little further down. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. A little further in chapter 3. We know that we have passed out of death into life. Okay, if you can put your thumb on the text right there, you would say, oh, great. This is how I know I've passed from, from death into life. Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Okay. Good test. How am I in loving others? That's a good test. I think you could go through these. Uh, I, I, I gave it some thought, but I decided not to do that. But I think you could go through these and kind of give yourself a grade. How are you doing on this one? It's a test. How are you doing on loving others? Well, pretty good when I've had a good night's sleep and a little bit of food. When I've had my coffee, I'm not bad. Uh, when I'm late for work and driving down the road and somebody cuts me off, not as well, maybe. Not waving love. And so, and so it might be that this test is um, contingent upon how I'm feeling in the moment rather than what I have decided to live like. So it might be good to live my life based on the decision to love as Christ loved. Not when I feel like it, but because I've decided to be like Christ. Best I know how. Not because he's asking me to perform, but because I love him and because I want to be like him. Those who are born of God don't love the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, we've talked about this since almost January last year. There's a world over here that is lost and dark and lying to us. It's called the world. And God is asking us to renounce the world. In fact, um, Jesus, Jesus said, So therefore... Uh, any of you that does not renounce all that he or she has cannot be my disciple. You can't be my disciple and be looking this way and say that I'm walking towards God. You can't do that. Well, you can, but it's tremendously dangerous, and who knows where you'll end up. You'll mostly end up attached to the world. You have to, you have to renounce all that they have and and. And in that, Jesus is saying we have to be careful because um, affluence is a huge test for us. 
when, when we have lots of stuff, it's hard to turn our back on it. We just get all encumbered in it. So there, there, is, a, there is a place for living simply, but, but that becomes legalistic too, right? You can do that like a legalist as well. So the trick is to turn my back on this, to renounce it, and to begin setting my sight on things above, not things that are on earth, because things that are on earth are temporary, but things that are uh, unseen are eternal. Right? You learn that verse. And, and so our eyes are set on the eternal. I'm walking in that direction, and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. They just get small in the rearview mirror as I'm going this way. And so those who are born of God don't love the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him or her. Those who are born of God confess the Son and receive him, abide in him, have him. No one denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Jesus Christ, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, the triune God. John is inviting us into the depth of the doctrine of the triune God, helping us to understand and confronting a false teaching about Jesus being you know, several orbits below the Father that was trickling around in that day. He's a really, really good man, but he's not really God. No. If you have the Son, you have the Father. If you do not have the Son, you do not have the Father. I don't think I can be any more clear than that, says John. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he is in God. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son, Son of God does not have life. Okay, it's pretty clear. I can write that down. I can write that down, and then I can say to myself, do I have the Son? Does the Holy Spirit affirm in me when I ask the question, does the Spirit say, of course you do? You do. You love me. You love the Son. You love the Father. You, I abide in you and you abide in me. You don't always perform well, but thankfully it's not about your performance. It's about me living in you and enjoying you and you and me, says God. That's the point. So it's a great question, and there's a great assurance in it. I told you I wanted to talk a little bit about martyrdom, and I uh, made sure I didn't tell anybody about that so that you wouldn't come to church today. But there is this wonderful man by the name of Josef Zan, T-S-O-N, and uh, in Romanian, apparently, the T kind of disappears, the T-S, kind of disappears, and it's just zan. Uh, forgive me, any Romanian, for I think, probably saying that poorly. You, you may not have, rec- is that, are you Romanian? 
I am so sorry for what I just did to your heritage. All right, all right. Uh, but I am lifting up a Romanian. So I'm at least doing that. This guy, honest to goodness, if you uh, don't know his name and testimony, you should come to know it a little bit. Uh, he is, I believe, still alive. I tried to find um, a death date, but he's got to be well into his 80s, probably into his 90s. He was at the top of his game in the 60s and 70s. So uh, he, as a preacher, an evangelist, uh, leader in the Romanian church, um, was there during the, um, make sure I'm putting it in my notes here, make sure I say it right, the, the communist leader there, uh, Ceausescu. Ceausescu? Yep. <laughs> I have apparently butchered uh, Romanian twice today. And um, this evil dictator of Romania was convicted of genocide, having killed somewhere between 60 and 100,000 Romanians, uh, many of whom confess life in Christ. And so under his communist rule for mm, a couple of decades, um, Yosef uh, was, the past, was the church leader in Romania during those times. I want to read about a page and a half of his testimony of a letter that he sent to a pastor in the United States. So this is, this is Yosef Zan writing to us. If I had said to him, Joseph, can you write our church a little bit of your testimony and a little bit of what you've discovered about Christ, having lived as uh, an oppressed, persecuted leader in a, in a terribly persecuted community? Uh, Share, me, share with me your thoughts. And he writes back, and he says this to us. The Lord blessed me to grow up in a home of very devout Christians. They were the first Baptists in our area, and they went through a lot of persecution. And no wonder, in their bedroom, my mom and dad, in the most prominent place, they had this scripture written beautifully on a glass plaque. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. As their bedroom was also our living room, I may say that I grew up under this scripture. As I grew up one day, I wanted to read this scripture for myself, so I opened up to Revelation 2.10, and I was surprised to read that they were going to be imprisoned just for 10 days. Now, he doesn't go on and reference that verse. Let me reference it for you. Uh, Revelation 2.10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. So this is written to the church of Smyrna. Remember, he writes letters to seven churches at the beginning of Revelation. Smyrna is one of the good churches, one of two out of the seven. And he says, do not fear, Smyrna, what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested. Wow. And for ten days you will have tribulation, but be faithful unto death, and we read till you die, and I will give you the crown of life. So I'm not sure we're reading that quite right. So I want to read this scripture for myself. So I opened up to Revelation 2.10. I was surprised to read that they were only going to be in prison for just 10 days. So this wasn't a big deal. Why then the advice to be faithful unto death? It wasn't until years later when I studied the issue of martyrdom 
did I come to see what was behind the statement? So now he's going to teach us a little bit from Revelation chapter 2. It says, in the days following Christ's ascension and the forming of the church subsequent under the Roman persecutions, a person was accused that they were a Christian and they would be summoned to the authorities and asked if he or she was a Christian. If she responded, he does it all in the female gender. If she responded no, she would be asked to prove it by taking a pinch of incest, sprinkling it above the fire off the altar of Caesar and saying, Caesar is Lord. If she did that, she would be given a certificate that said she worshiped Caesar and she would be set free. And there would not necessarily, they would not necessarily have to denounce Christ, just worship Caesar. If she responded, no, I cannot say that Caesar is Lord because only Jesus Christ is Lord, she would immediately be taken into the room for torture and there she would be tortured cruelly for the entire day to force her to confess that Caesar is Lord. If she resisted that day of torture, she would be condemned to die in the arena. She would be taken to prison for 10 days to let the most visible wounds of the torture be healed. And then after those 10 to 14 days, she would be taken to be martyred in the arena. So it wasn't those who, yeah, doesn't that put a different perspective on it? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. After 10 days, you die. After 10 days of torture, you die. Yeah, that puts a different spin on it. It was then that I understood that being thrown into prison for 10 days meant confirmed martyrdom. Assured martyrdom. That's what he was saying to the church of Smyrna. And that's what he's saying to every good church. That the possibility of suffering is more than mere possibility. Therefore, be faithful unto death, he writes, was very meaningful indeed. One day I read in Hebrews 2, verse 15, that Satan keeps people in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. I came to see clearly that in our situation under the terror of communism, fear was indeed the supreme weapon of Satan. Fear was the supreme weapon of Satan. Everybody was afraid of being arrested and being sent to the labor camps to perish there. That's why everybody learned to say what the communists expected them to say. And it was then that I asked the Lord to really liberate me from the fear of dying. So that's an interesting prayer. Please, Lord, liberate me from the fear of dying. I would say be careful when you, <laughs> when you utter that prayer. He may very well save you from the fear of dying. But it might be careful of what you ask for. There were three ways in which he liberated me. First, I understood that he literally died my own death. Fascinating. He died my death. Therefore, I shall never die. I, I've stood up here before and said, you can't hurt me, I'm immortal. Kind of true. I shall, I shall only go home to be with my Lord where it is much better. So first I understand that he literally died my own death, therefore sh I shall never die. Second, he made me understand that when I die for him and for the gospel, this in itself is a way of defeating Satan and makes for the triumph of 
the gospel. And so the editor kind of inserts right here. He says that that's one of the purposes of testing that God takes us through. Our willingness to suffer for Christ's sake glorifies God in that it, it becomes a visible witness to the watching world that Jesus is worth living for and worth dying for. Can you see how different, how different those are? Jesus is worth living for. Great, I'm in. Jesus is worth dying for. Uh, time out. Did we talk about that when we first started this? I don't think we did. So, he's discovering that Jesus is worth living for and that Jesus is worth dying for. And when we come to that conviction, and if there's an eventuality, that's a powerful witness to those around us. Wow! This is not a casual faith. This is not a cavalier faith. This is not a faith based on good feelings. This is a faith of firm conviction. Worth dying for. And... Most of us here in the 21st century America most likely will not face that. Third, he says, that if I am full of love for the very people who are persecute me and torture me and kill me, then I cannot be afraid of them because there is no fear in love. That's how they controlled the people is they made them afraid in communist Romania. Uh, they, they were tricked persuaded to say what they needed to say in order to avoid that which they were fearful of which would have been torture and death. Makes sense. Doesn't sound great. But what Joseph is saying is that this love of my Savior can make me even love my persecutor. When I was first summoned to the secret police headquarters in 1974, an officer was upset that I did not want to do what he wanted and threatened to kill me. I responded calmly, Sir, let me explain this issue of you killing me. Yes, you can do it. But, sir, you should know that your supreme weapon is killing but my supreme weapon is dying. What? The evil one's supreme weapon is killing, but my supreme weapon is dying. And then he said to his captor, this is how it works, sir. You know that my sermons are on tapes all over the country. When you kill me, you just sprinkled them with my blood because everybody will know that I died for my preaching. Everybody who has a tape of one of my sermons will take it and listen to it again and say, I can trust what this man says because he died for what he preached. Sir, my preaching will become ten times louder if you kill me. Because you kill me, in fact, I shall... Sorry. Ugh. I shall conquer this land for God because you kill me. So go on and do it. He was shocked. He pondered for a moment and said, wait here for a few minutes. Apparently he went and reported this to the boss because when he came back with a very calm voice, he said, you can go home. We'll see what happens. 
Another aspect of this story came three years later in 1977 when I was charged with treason was threatened to be executed. The interrogator, who was acting very scared, came to me and explained that I had better make a compromise and save my life. Sprinkle some incense on the altar of Caesar and you can be saved. Don't make a big deal out of this, Joseph. Your life's at risk here. Wake up. I calmly said, Sir, there is no need to save my life. Just go on and shoot me. I am ready for it. He exploded in fury. What sort of man are you? When I say to somebody that I will kill them, he jumps up in fear. But you smile to your ears and say, kill me. You are not normal. He said, yes, I am not normal. Because I was liberated from the fear of dying. And I came to see that they can do nothing to a man who is not afraid of dying. So I, I love that. And I feel like he, he gave a word of warning also a little bit later embedded into this email for America. Because he said, um, asked, you know, what do you think of the faith in America? He said that he believed that 90% of Christians in America can pass the test of adversity. But he said, I, I'm afraid that 95% will fail the test of prosperity. So, for the rest of us that aren't Joseph, what does this mean then to us? How are we supposed to live in a similar manner? We're, we're not afflicted by communism. We're not afflicted by these types of things, but we are afflicted and asked to asked to take measure of our lives. And so I want to speak into that just briefly. When he was facing trials, Yosef, when he was facing trials, it wasn't a formula that saved him, it was doctrine. Okay? So in church today, if you take a little class on preaching in the 21st century, someone will say, there'll be a book out, grab one, and it'll say, you need to, you need to finish with an application. You need to leave them with, here's three things that you can do to help know that you're a Christian. Okay, we've been talking about the assurance of your faith. Here's three things you can do. I, I kind of hate that formula kind of thing. So we, we want to get fixed. We want things done for us. What are, what are the five things that will help my marriage? What are the six things that will help my teenage son get out of bed on a morning and make their bed? Dave, will you fix my dishwasher? I just, I just need help with life. It's so broken. Just give me a couple, three th things to do. I'll, I'll go do those. See, the difficulty is those three things are different for every person. And once you do them and they don't work, you're going to come back to me and say, whoa, you were lying to me. So I'm, I'm not real big into that kind of stuff. I'm pretty big into doctrine. Because I believe that good theology, that these solid truths will change your life. And will set you free from formulas and disaster. Because it's not so much about fixing life, it's about doing life. You can't fix it. 
this is a broken world. Jesus has fixed it. And it's becoming his. We're going to live into that. I think that might have been off script too. So very quickly, eternal life, point one. We have been given eternal life. And I want to say not just eternal life, but abundant life. In, in uh, Scripture, it says in 1 John, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked on and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This is Jesus. The life was made manifest. And we have seen it. We have seen him. We testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And that manifestation is called Jesus the Christ. There is also an indomitable light. And uh, yesterday uh, at Rick's memorial, they used the word indomitable. I had to go home and look it up and make sure I knew exactly what that was. <laughs> I thought I'd move it forward. That indomitable, that irrepressible, that unstoppable light. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. In him there is no darkness. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Take it to the bank. Take it to the bank. If you remember two verses in your life, you can quote those at heaven's door. And then, and then it talks about fearless love. And uh, if you want to look it up, I have a book entitled Fearless Love that you can probably still buy from Amazon. But fearless love is, in my book, is more about sexual health. But God has applied fearless love to every aspect of our life. Joseph said, if I am full of love for the people that persecute me and torture me and kill me, I cannot be afraid of them because there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Hmm, where have I heard that before? Oh yeah, that's right, John. He says everything. There's no fear in love, for perfect love casts out fear. And what else did he say? He said, little children, you are from God and have overcome the world. For he who lives in you is greater than he who is in the world. You know what we do sometimes? We get it flipped. And we say, he who overcomes Jesus is in who overcomes the world. Jesus is in them. You know what? There's a lot of people who think in their head they've overcome the world. There's all kinds of 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 sects of false teaching out there that says this is a way to overcome the world. We mean we must not get that sentence out of order. The sentence doesn't read. If you have overcome the world, then you are from God. No, you are from God and you have overcome the world. When God abides in you and you abide in him, you are now on the life-saving journey of relinquishing your hold on these things. And for most of us, at least for me, it's taken me uh, nearly 70 years and I suspect it'll take another 85 if I, another well, maybe 85 if I live that long. And, and, until I'm 85, I, I am 
I am unencumbering myself with things as I go. I think of myself swimming across the Jordan, and I'm finding myself encumbered by all these things. And as I get further and further into the river, I think to myself, man, I can't take that with me. That's got to go too. That's dragging me down. That's an anchor. And I'm letting things go until finally I get to heaven, and I am unencumbered. I'm truly set free. Who doesn't want that? That's what I'm longing for. That's what I long for you. And I wish I could do it for you, but I can't. And you know what this river is? It's a black, inky river of hardness, of suffering. And that suffering helps us get rid of this stuff so that I can make it to the other side. And it's not about my performance. It's about what life in Christ does to me. Life in Christ doesn't demand that of me. Life in Christ enables me to set that aside so that I am more like Him unencumbered by the world. Free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty. Free at last. Let's pray. So Father, indeed, we're trying to put in place the joys of your doctrine and the hope that we have in you. I have no other hope. I have no other hope. All other hope has proven bankrupt. And so, I cast my hope on you, the author and perfecter of my faith. I trust in you and you alone. Father in heaven, I confess Jesus, your Son, and Jesus only. Amen.